So please have your Bibles open again at Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 to chapter 6. One of the best known songs associated with chapter 6 and a song that we're not singing tonight is Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, a spiritual song. And it's really only partly correct. The walls did come tumbling down, but... It was the Lord who fought the battle of Jericho. And that is a really important point as we look at the narrative tonight. Keys in verse 2 of chapter 6. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Now, there are some real frontline issues in this this book and, and uh, beginning with this chapter, which we've already spoken about, uh, the onslaught from the, the wave of new atheists uh, who rather ironically use biblical values to condemn uh, the actions of God in the conquest of Canaan, amongst other things. And we're going to uh, consider these again. But uh, chiefly, uh, this is to do with the... Uh, Dependence of the believer on God in the spiritual battle to which he or she is called. It's to do with the call to faithful obedience uh, in serving the Lord. And thirdly, the dreadful judgment that awaits on those who are stubbornly impenitent. And we're going to look at uh, the chapter under these three heads together. First then, the battle is the Lord's, the, the battle physical in Joshua's terms, the battle spiritual in our own lives. Now, you'll know that uh, the divisions that we have in our Bible are not in the original, so they're not part of the, the inerrant communication of God to us. And in this particular case, it's not a particularly helpful division that we have in chapter 6. It's best to see uh, 5.13 and the appearance of the angel of the Lord continuing into chapter 6. And with that understanding, what we would have from verse 2 onwards is the ongoing instruction of the angel of the Lord to Joshua. Giving instructions how Jericho will be taken and uh, right down to verse 5 of chapter 6. So verse 1 then is in brackets, if you like. It's in parenthesis. And it's one of the the literary techniques that we come across in the chapter, uh, making a point that Jericho is actually going to be a really tough nut to crack. It's a fortress. And it's shut up. All the people are there. And it's got solid walls outside it. This is going to be something which is going to be extremely difficult to undertake. No one went out, no one went in. Now, Jericho was actually a very small city. We would never term it a city in our own day, you know. Um, (coughs) Americans might call it a city. Uh, I was amazed when uh, we had an American minister in in Snyzer Church who referred to a meeting... uh, in Uig City Hall, Uig being a metropolis of about 250 people. And this would be the size of Jericho, uh, an extremely small place. 
but nevertheless, a significant <coughs> obstacle to the, the rapid uh, conquest of Canaan uh, because it would take months to bring down the walls with uh, what the Israelites had to hand. And the conquest had to be swift to allow the people to settle in the land uh, having dis, uh, dispersed and, and conquered and, and, uh, and slain all of the inhabitants. And perhaps Joshua's pondering this difficulty when he's confronted by this strange visitor. Who is the visitor? Well, he introduces himself as the commander of the Lord's army. And it seems that he is this strange angel of the Lord figure that crops up uh, in the Old Testament from time to time. So not a mere angel, but an appearance of God himself. Some scholars think of him as an appearing of the Son of God before the Incarnation. But it's probably more straightforward just to think of God taking on visible form for a specific occasion and purpose. And the man is an awesome figure. Uh, he has a drawn sword. And he's the kind of guy that Joshua hopes will be on his side. He looks like a kind of uh, like a superhero type of figure. And so Joshua's question is understandable. Are you for us or for our enemies? And the man's reply is elusive. The New International Version translates it as neither. But that's really... Uh, not hugely helpful either because that would suggest that uh, the angel of the Lord is not for Israel. Equally, he's not for uh, the Canaanites. Uh, Better is uh, the translation simply no, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have come. In other words, he is saying that Joshua has asked the wrong question. Uh, It's not a case of having God rubber stamp. Uh, at one side or the other. Uh, God is not interested in sponsoring a cause or an individual. He's not in the business of signing up to our agenda or driving forward our ambitions by his divine stamp. And in the course of history, many uh, outwardly Christian societies or normally Christian societies have played this game have sought to say that that God was on their side, that that they had divine sanction for the course of action that they were taking. Amongst others, Bob Dylan caricatured this uh, in a song, With God on Our Side. And he goes through all of the the wars that America has been involved in since the the, the war with the the Native Americans. the Spanish-American War had its day and, and the Civil War too was soon laid away and the names of the heroes I was made to memorize with guns in their hands and God on their side. And his point is that uh, Dylan's saying we're always claiming God's approval for the political action we simply want to take anyway. And so at the beginning of this great undertaking to claim the promised land, God warns Joshua That he is not simply going to give him approval for all he does. Joshua must learn at the outside that God is the great director of operations. 
He comes as the commander of the Lord's army. And if there's any doubt as to who this man is, as he now responds to Joshua's stammering request for a message, his command, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy, would dispel any any doubts that Joshua had because here is the echo of the command that the Lord had given Moses, Joshua's great mentor at the burning bush when he had encountered him there. There again, the ground was hallowed by the presence of the living God. God is the Lord. He's not like some uh, trite Christian bumper stickers put it, my co-pilot. He's not uh, there to uh, simply give approval to my, my lifestyle. He is Lord of all. And so the Lord doesn't give Joshua a blessing on the military strategy that Joshua has already developed. But he gives instead his own set of instructions to Joshua. He is to march around the city seven times uh, with the armed men. The seven priests with ram's horns, with ram horn trumpets go ahead, blowing their trumpets. The people themselves are to remain quiet. But on the seventh day, they are to shout and the walls of the city will fall down. In a meeting with a small group of missionaries in China, Hudson Taylor, uh, the founder of uh, what was then China Inland Mission, what today is called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, Taylor reminded uh, the missionaries that there are basically three ways to go about Christian work. Way one, make the best plans we can and carry them out to the best of our ability. Way two, we may carefully lay our plans and carry them through and ask God to help us and to prosper us in connection with these plans. But way three is to begin with God and to ask God his plans and to seek to carry them through in his strength. And of course, it's the third way that God blesses. And it's the third way that Joshua will follow here. God gives him his own set of instructions. And Joshua will carry out God's plans in God's way, in God's strength. Now, that's intensely practical, isn't it? It's important in all our lives, uh, um, in every kind of undertaking, uh, individually, that we, that we seek to honour God by seeking uh, his, his, his purposes for us. That's important as well in the undertakings that we, we have as a church. Uh, we, we work under the, the, the kind of broad heading that we're called as a congregation to bring the gospel uh, to as many people in our part of Lanarkshire as we can. And there are ways of doing that. And... and uh, and as a congregation, we believe that we are called to uh, invest time and money in uh, extending the witness to, to Chapel Hall. And we believe that we are to extend the, the plant, the building, the footprint of, of, our, of our church here to facilitate gospel ministry. 
And it's so important that, that we are guided by God and, and we believe under God that he has, as we've prayerfully sought him and have looked uh, to, to see the providential leading of God in these areas. We must always be open to correction and God's hand uh, leading us. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's blessing. So, God appears before Joshua uh, with this, uh, this warning that the battle that lies ahead is the Lord's battle. The Lord has delivered, because it's as good as done, Jericho into his hands. But it will be done in this, we could almost say, bizarre fashion. What kind of army uh, ever conquered by marching round a city, uh, blowing trumpets? But the very strangeness of God's methods, the seven priests blowing horns, the ark, the marching around the city, the shout, uh, all of these underline the truth in verse 2 that it's the Lord who will give the victory. But nevertheless, God's people are engaged. God could simply have uh, flattened the walls there and then. God could have destroyed the people. But God engages his people. They have an involvement. And that entails doing exactly what God calls them to do. And there are a number of significant details uh, in the instructions. Uh, they, are to, uh, they are to do with the number seven. The number seven recurs frequently. Seven priests carrying seven trumpets. Um, the march around the city was to take place uh, every day for seven days. Uh, on the seventh day, they had to march around seven times. Now, it's always a bit risky to uh, load too much significance into numbers. Uh, some people are really into this. But nevertheless, uh, seven is uh, generally a significant number in the Bible. Uh, it's generally the, the number of perfection. It's a number to do with the, the creation of the cosmos. And God is going to work, as it were, uh, a reversal of creation as the, the form and structure of Jericho uh, dissolves before uh, his might. And central to the whole movement is the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark is mentioned ten times in the chapter. So the writer is rubbing our noses in this. And what's the Ark uh, significant for? It's God's presence. What's going on here? God is bringing about this great victory. It's God's presence that's crucial, not the numbers of soldiers in this ragtag army. And then there's the shout on the seventh uh, encircling on the seventh day, uh, which will mark the falling of the city walls. But the Israelites will not have lifted a finger. They won't have engaged in any military attack. Uh, it's a recognition of the fact that the Lord Almighty has laid bare his holy arm, and he has done wonders. It's a shout of triumph. But the Israelites had to obey God. God chooses to involve his people. His repetition uh, of the detail, the, the, the way the story is told, isn't it? It's fat, may sometimes appear to us... Uh, dull that we have uh, so much detail and repeated detail but there, there is a reason for that 
uh, it's leading up to this climax and it's underlining the fact that the people did as they were told to do. So on the second day, we're, we're told with similar words exactly what was done on the first day. And it's kind of underlining this long wait for the climax. We know already what that climax will be, but we're kept waiting for it. And then, after uh, the second part of 16b, verse 16b, there's another uh, interesting technique, uh, which, uh, again, brings to prominence uh, a key aspect of the obedience of the Israelite army. Joshua gives the command, shout! And then, strangely, it's followed by a set of detailed instructions to the people. They're to be sure to spare Rahab and her family. And they're not to take as plunder any of the silver or gold of the city. It's to be given to the Lord. And there will be consequences for the individuals if the command of the Lord is broken. Now, some of the commentators suggest that these detailed instructions were given by Joshua, but were given earlier. And that they are placed here to underline the importance of them. Uh, think of it practically, what, what it would be like if Joshua had gone, shout! <laughs> the people would have responded immediately and they would never have heard the ongoing instructions about Rahab and the, uh, the, the, the devoting to the Lord's treasury of the silver and gold. I came across a similar kind of situation uh, at a funeral early in the week. Uh, we came to the end of the service, and uh, you know that point where there are intimations given, uh, but the organist hadn't twigged onto this, and she kept playing a kind of voluntary whilst the poor minister was trying to get over the instructions for going to the crematorium and what was going to happen afterwards. He did his best, but we couldn't hear what was being said. And that would have been multiplied on a huge scale uh, had Joshua tried to get over these instructions when everybody was shouting as he had commanded. But what Joshua said earlier has been placed here to underline the absolute importance of obedience to God's command. And we'll see that with the sin of Achan. What happens when uh, a member of the Israelite army took to themselves what belonged to God. And so we're left waiting for the result of the shout and the sounding trumpets. Because this is the important part. Obedience to God is in the end of the day more important than the falling down of the walls of Jericho. <coughs> then the walls fall down. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Hebrews 11.30. God gave the victory. And the Israelites must now execute God's judgment on the people of Jericho. There probably weren't that many people there. Some apologists have kind of emphasized the the fact that this was a military fort with not very many people. I think that's kind of really ducking the issues. But in actual fact, uh, archaeological evidence suggests that the, the site of Jericho was probably something like 200 metres 
by 80 meters and may have had a garrison of a couple of hundred. So it, it was actually a, a fairly small population here. But all are to be put under the ban, the harem. This was devoting to the Lord for destruction all that was unclean. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Only Rahab was spared along with her family because Rahab had believed in the God of heaven and earth. And again, Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Rahab the prostitute, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. But the city was burned, and everything in it, apart from the silver and gold, and the iron and bronze articles which were put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now, as we said earlier, this has been used as a it's been weaponized, if you like, by uh, the new atheists uh, against the God of the Bible, the God in whom they uh, purport not to believe, uh, that whom they claim is a moral monster. Uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, uh, in his usual temperate manner, uh, describes God as a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, all in measured tones. Now, according to Article 2 of the UN's Genocide Convention, the term genocide means a major action committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And we have examples, well-known examples of, of a genocide uh, in the massacre of Armenian Christians by Turks in 1915 and 16, and of course the extermination of six million Jews by the Nazis in the 1940s. Uh, in Rwanda, uh, there was a slaughter of 800,000 Tutsis and Hutus, Hutus, Tutsis, in Rwanda in 1994. Now, because of that kind of definition, uh, some describe the conquest of Canaan as a genocide instigated by God. But as we said earlier, genocide is not an appropriate word to use for events in the conquest because there's a major difference between uh, modern genocidal events and the Israelite conquest of Canaan. Uh, the 20th century examples... Uh, we've just listed, were basically people killing people simply because they hated them and or wanted their land. People killing people because they either hated them or wanted their land. What was happening in, in Canaan? The people of Canaan had so advanced in their wickedness that they had come under the judgment of a holy God. They were destroyed at the direction of God because of their sin. Now because that destruction was believed to be directed by God, atheists obviously wouldn't find anything acceptable 
in what happened. Uh, this is not the ground in which they want to argue. But once we uh, look at the biblical doctrine of God and take into account the seriousness of sin, then the, the whole scenery changes. The picture looks very different. God is a God of truth and justice who punishes wrongdoing. And there, there are two very significant facts that are important here. First of all, there is the extreme wickedness of the Canaanites who populated the land. The, the Canaanite religion we know from uh, extra-biblical sources was an extremely depraved form of religion. The pantheon of gods that were worshipped by the Canaanites were supposed to practice all kinds of grotesque <coughs> behaviour. Uh, for example, incest was, was practised within the pantheon, and therefore it's not surprising that it was condoned uh, within the population. The religion involved uh, prostitution as part of worship. It involved the sacrifice of children uh, to these gods. The people had become utterly degenerate. And the question is, who has the right to bring degenerate people to account? You and I don't have that right. But God has that right. And he does so in this instance by using the Israelites as his sword of judgment. So God is a holy God is judging sin. But here's the second point, uh, which is equally important. God is slow to wrath. Exceedingly slow to wrath. And we have like a, a textbook example here of the patience of God in respect to, uh, to sin and judgment. In Abraham's day, uh, the Amorites, one of the Canaanite groups, were extremely wicked already. And God was giving them time. They had not reached yet the point of no return, which only God can set. And so God says, referring to the sojourn later of Abraham's descendants in Egypt, um, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. How long are we talking about? Friends, we're talking about 430 years. An interval of 430 years elapses uh, whilst the Israelites are in Egypt before they'll come out of Egypt and then judgment will fall in the conquest of Canaan. For 430 years, well more of course, but from that point, God suffered the gross wickedness of the Canaanites before saying enough is enough. And as he did in the days of Noah, is determined to begin afresh, to wipe the slate clean. It's important also to remember that these years of God's patience were years in which there was continual revelation. Now, we need to bring the New Testament into bear. Uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us that the pagan... Uh, who may be worshipping other false gods, is still not unaware of the one true God. What does Paul say? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven 
against all the godlessness and wickedness of, the, of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And we're not talking about them having a Bible, we're simply talking about uh, knowledge and creation and within. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 430 years in which God is surrounding the Canaanites with revelatory pressure, calling on them to acknowledge him. And as if that wasn't enough, they also have special revelation because God's mighty acts came to their awareness, came to their ears. Remember how Rahab told the spies that the whole land was in fear and trembling because we have heard. We have heard what uh, (coughs) your God did with uh, the kings Og and and Sihon. The leaving of Egypt, God's redemptive act in taking his people out of Egypt, the great miracles that accompanied that, the, the parting of the Red Sea, The conquest of the kings had reached the peoples of Canaan and only Rahab responded in faith and obedience. But her solitary example stands to condemn the rest for their dogged refusal to turn to the Lord and escape their doom. The door was opened, they refused to go through it. And then the judgment fell and the Israelites, in the words of Romans 13, the agents of wrath, every vestige of Canaanite society had to be removed from the land because were it not removed from the land it would pollute the religion of God's people. Now again it's important to stress that this action against Canaan was for one time and situation in history. It related to the establishment of Israel as a nation under God and putting the Canaanite nations under the ban Uh, Devoting them to destruction in this way was to secure the purity of the people. Uh, There has never been uh, in gospel times an excuse for taking up the sword in the name of God to advance his kingdom. And Paul underlines that in 2 Corinthians 10.4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. but we do fight spiritually. And this is where there is an application in our spiritual warfare. We are engaged in earnest struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil, and we must not give the enemy an inch. Uh, And we must be aware of the, the potential of sin to pollute our lives. Jesus has warned us, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, if you've got friends who uh, lead you into, into places which are, are, are full of temptation and which are pulling you away from, from the Lord Jesus Christ, say cheerio to those friends. It's better to lose some friends than to be dragged away from faithful obedience to Christ. There's no place in the Christian life for putting up with sin and giving it a foothold in 
our lives. We're to put sin under a ban. It's to be devoted to destruction. And so, God is our commander. And as we move on in the life of faith, we're called to obey, to seek out and to obey his directions rather than asking for him to rubber stamp our plans. We're to trust him for victory, no matter how unlikely the outcome or how small and insignificant the resources he calls us to use. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's. And true victory in the Christian life is won when we do God's work in God's way. May God bless to us his word.